This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 149, Comic Reviews for the week of Wednesday, February the 26th. Welcome to Comic Shenanigans. This is episode 149, the Comic Reviews episode for the week of Wednesday, February the 26th. I am your host, Adam Chapman. Every week we take a look at the comics that were released the previous week, and uh, we do a simple rating between 1 and 10, uh, just on what that issue is like. I usually like to do a little bit of a background of the issue itself, what it, what it kind of covered, and then do a little bit of a discussion on what worked in it and what didn't. Uh, these episodes generally run between anywhere from 30 minutes to 45 minutes. Uh, we're usually looking at anywhere from 10 to 17 comics. Uh, this particular week... Um, Let's, uh, we're starting off with Aquaman 28 as we continue the current run by Jeff Parker. Um, he obviously carried out, or not carried out, he picked up where Jeff Johns left off with Aquaman. Uh, Paul Pelletier remains the penciler on this particular book. Um, for the most part, I'm enjoying the tone that Parker injects into the, into the Aquaman book. Um, a lot more humor than, than uh, Jeff Johns was putting in. Um, I do like the, the ideas of an intrigue. Um, he's definitely doing an interesting balancing act of developing more of the uh, underwater aspects of Aquaman's life as well as trying to ground him uh, from a surface world perspective as well. Uh, also, we have this character who's kind of uh, walking around um, Amnesty Bay kind of trying to get a glimpse of Aquaman, asking people about him, wanting to interview him. I'm wondering where this is gonna, kind of going to go. Um, this issue, we have a bit of follow-up of uh, what happened in the last issue. And we also have this underground, or un, sorry, underwater uh, human outpost that's been built. And Aquaman obviously doesn't kind of take too kindly to this uh, outpost being created. Uh, he sees a, a man being uh, mauled by a, a bunch of sharks, so he goes to protect this man. He's attacked by this outpost before Dr. Shin is able to convince them to uh, kind of uh, lay down their weapons and allow Aquaman into the base. Um... That part of the issue I thought was really strong. Just you're, you're setting up an antagonist for Aquaman. You're also setting up a future discussion between him and Dr. Chin as to what exactly is going on. So that I'm looking forward to. Unfortunately, um, that's only like the first eight or so issues. And the rest of the issue um, is a really awkward, weird um, uh, high school reunion that Aquaman goes to. And it's kind of a, I guess, a little bit of a glimpse of what he was like before he left Amnesty Bay. But... It's a little ham-fisted. It goes on too long. Um, it just it feels so like something that you maybe would have started the book off before we were learned to, to take Aquaman more seriously. Like when the book started, there was def- definitely a sense of Aquaman, Aquaman being a bit of a loose character, and they're kind of playing with him and the idea that people kind of make fun of his presence. But now it just feels out of place. Um, overall, I'm going to give the issue a six, uh, and, and mostly that's because. Um, the latter half of the issue really kind of falls flat, whereas the first half was so strong. It was really well put together. Um, Pelletier's artwork is, is fantastic, although I have to admit there were some panels with when he's swimming. Uh, the color work seemed a little... Um, the color and inks didn't quite seem uh, up to par. Um, and the whole, again, I think Pelletier wasn't as comfortable with the non-Aquaman parts. When he's doing Arthur Curry at the high school reunion with Mira, I think it's a little bit more uncomfortable, um, and it's just kind of a weirder vibe, whereas when it's underwater and he's doing the Aquaman action, I think that's where he's in his element, and he definitely excels, whereas this the, the non-superhero stuff, I think, dragged a little, and not just in the script, but also in the art. 
Uh, to the detriment of the issue, unfortunately. Uh, next up is Batman Superman, number 8. Um, this is... Actually, I want to look at it. I'm trying to remember if this is part 1 or part 2. This is part of the First Contact storyline. Um, this is part 1. It's by Greg Pak and Jay Lee. I've read very little of their Batman Superman because I really was turned off by the first issue. Um, still, I find the artwork by Jay Lee is... He, he really is a great artist when it comes to accentuating the creepy and the weird. Um, when it comes to, you know, showing the, the darkness of Batman, uh, I think he goes overboard and it just doesn't quite work. Um, this is the kind of storyline that's bringing together uh, Huntress and Power Girl with the um, Superman and Batman of our current Earth, the New 52 Earth. Uh, obviously, they're from Earth 2, and uh, they're trying to deal with Power Girl having energy surges, uh, Superman trying to help protect her, as, as well as uh, Batman and Huntress trying to kind of uh, lend some f uh, friendly advice and help as well. Um, it ends up not going so well for Superman by the ending. Um, it, it's definitely an, an interesting storyline. Um, I like how it's written more than I like how it's illustrated. I think the art really fails to captivate me because um, it just it just doesn't seem like it's the right fit. Um, I like the story. It's kind of an interesting way of having it written uh, where you have Batman and Superman's different perspectives on everything, um, which is, again, not, not necessarily new or interested, uh, but I do like how they're doing that, and also having Huntress's own uh, internal narration, so of her and Batman kind of narrating most of the issue, I thought was really cool, um, and it, and also having Superman's narration, like, I think the internal narration monologues are actually extremely important to kind of helping mo motivate the story and move, move it along nicely. Uh, I'm going to give it a six, though, and again, I, uh, I think a lot of this is because as much as I enjoyed the story, the art was just not the right choice. Um, it just looks sloppy at times. I, I think Jay Lee used to be able to do many different styles, and I think he just does creepy and weird. I think ever since he did Dark Tower, um, his his artwork has never really recovered from that. And he, I mean, he's done a lot of weird, creepy stuff before that. I mean, he did amazing work on what The Century, Inhumans with Paul Jenkins. Actually, both with Paul Jenkins. Now that I think about it. That stuff was really good. That's when it was like over 10 years ago. His style kind of reached a certain point where I think he has stopped progressing and now everything kind of looks like that particular style, which is, for me, something I saw a lot of when, when he did the Dark Tower series for Marvel. Uh, so that's why it's only going to be a 6 for me. Uh, next up is another of the all-new Marvel Now launches. Uh, it is the, I, I think, highly anticipated launch of Fantastic Four number 1. Um, this is written by James Robinson, uh, with artwork by Leonard Kirk. Uh, they're now wearing red costumes, which is not, never really explained and seems really out of left field. Um, I like Leonard Kirk as an artist. I do like, uh, James Robinson as well. Um, I think, I don't know, I, I expected something different here. Um, having it kind of start off with, uh, kind of a future Sue writing in a diary... And having this weird concept of what happens in this future, it's kind of cool as a, as a hook. It definitely makes you interested in what's going on, but am I that interested in, in what how it's designed, how this future glimpse is designed? Not necessarily. Um, from an artwork perspective, I think Leonard Kirk really uh, nails a vibe that really reminds me a lot of Mike Waringo when he illustrated Mark Wade's run on Fantastic Four. Um, the red in the costumes, I, I don't think, is ever really addressed in this issue. Um, a lot of the issues just, you know, the FF fighting against uh, Fin Fang Foom, 
um, and then repairing to the Baxter building afterwards. And then you get, um, you know, this the classic first issue of uh, Fantastic Four. Every time they have a, a new writer coming on, it feels like we get the same kind of thing where we're resetting that, oh, look, things going to visit um, Alicia Masters again, and maybe they're going to get back together. Uh, Johnny Storm being on tour. Again, I hate this rendition of Johnny Storm because... When I, f- I think my first Fantastic Four like proper universe comic, and not like an animated comic, but an actual comic from the uh, from the Marvel universe, I think was like three ninety five, three ninety four, somewhere around there, and that was my first glimpse of Johnny Storm, and he was much more adult. I mean, he'd been married, he'd his wife had turned out to be a scrawl. Uh, he was dealing with that. He was, you know, he was the leader of a team. I mean, he'd matured so much, and then it just feels like every writer wants to take that away. Um, as much as I like Mike, uh, sorry, Mark Wade's run on Fantastic Four, and I think it's one of the best ones I've ever read. It was just a lot of fun. Uh, it definitely felt like he was regressed to the you know the mentality of a teenager. And then you read his uh, the run by Jonathan Hickman, and it definitely felt like you know there were some aspects of him that were just showing the child in him. But he was also mature. I mean, he died and you know was profoundly changed by the experience. I didn't read a lot of Fractions run, but it felt like, again, it kind of reset that and took that away from him, and I don't understand why you take away this maturation of the character. Um, I know that continuity is kind of a dirty word these days, but like the character should be allowed to progress in some way. Um, but it just feels like every time we get a new writer coming on a book and they kind of reset everything, and we're resetting how we look at these characters. And I think that's unfortunate, and unfortunately, I say unfortunate a lot, I feel like we got a lot of that here in this particular issue. Um, James Robinson's a great writer. I think he falls into a lot of classic, uh, you know, uh, pitfalls here because of how he's writing the Fantastic Four. Um, anyways, I, I do think this is going to be a really interesting take. It could be interesting at least. Uh, I am interested to see where it goes. Uh, I was not all that blown away by this issue, though. I'd probably give it about a six and a half to a seven. I'm going to trend a little bit higher, uh, just because I do like the artwork regardless of the color of the costumes, which I don't really get the reason for the change yet. Um, so we'll see. I mean, so far I'm going to give it a 7. I hope this run gets better. Um, you know what? Part of me is thinking maybe I'm even rating it too high, even giving it a 7. I'm going to you know, I'm gonna downgrade it to a 6. Um, I'm really conflicted about it, but I think it has a lot of room to grow. It's not bad. It's just I. it's not the greatest first issue either. And I think it's a little slow. Um, it, it doesn't... I think one of the best first issues of any particular run on the, on the Fantastic Four in the more modern age is Mark Waid's, because as much as, as I said, there are some issues with kind of resetting the decks and kind of showing everyone to be their kind of stereotypical, classic um, personification of the characters, I do think his, what, what was it, the Nine Cent issue, is such a great single issue with a, a nice, you, you see the heartbeat of the Fantastic Four, you see the fun, you see the adventure, um, you see the, the fact that they're Imaginauts, but at the very end, they, he pulls back the curtain a little, and you see the, the beating heart of the FF, and what kind of motivates and drives uh, Reed Richards. And it is such a great first issue, because, I mean, if you've never read the Fantastic Four before, it's a very easy issue to kind of read, and be like, wow, this is, this is really good. Like, you don't need to have a lot of uh, baggage going into reading the Fantastic Four if you read that particular issue. I think it was like Fantastic Four 58 or something of the Volume 3 numbering, uh, before it went back to the classic numbering. Uh, and, I mean, if you can find the Mark Wade run, either find the uh, singles in a dollar bin somewhere, or even just pick up the uh, the original trade paperbacks that they released, or the Ultimate Collections that came out a few years later, I think it's a, a really great Fantastic Four run. 
Uh, next up is uh, The Flash 28. I feel like I missed last issue, but I've looked at a lot, read a lot of books recently. Um, so this is written by Brian Bucciolato. Pat, Patrick Zerker is on art. Um, Zerker's art is just not the same. Like, I was a huge fan of, and I've said this on the, on the podcast before, I, I was a huge fan of when he was the illustrator on Thunderbolts, but I think part of what I liked in that was that he was kind of aping Mark Bagley's style. So at the time, I was just like, oh, this guy's similar. No, I think that was on purpose, and this feels more like, I guess, maybe his natural style, but it's not the Zerker I'm used to, unfortunately. And it's good, but it's not great. Um, so this is, uh, so it's a dead man kind of storyline. The ending of the last issue felt very out, like out of left field, and this issue kind of feels that way as well. Um, it's a little bit more mystical, and you have a dead man team up. Uh, I honestly didn't find it all that interesting, and um, I think part of that's because I don't like the mystical to be involved with the kind of the science of Barry Allen as the Flash. I would kind of prefer his gimmicky villains. I mean, I know they don't want to lean too heavily on the established rogues, and they want to do other things, but I don't know. I just It wasn't quite to taste for me. Uh, the artwork, as I said, isn't as strong as I would have expected either. I'm going to give it a 5 out of 10. So, so far we've got three sixes and a 5. Uh, next up is Guardians of the Galaxy, number 12. Uh, this is written by Brian Michael Bendis with artwork by, artwork by Sarah Bocelli and Stuart Immonen. Um... I really dug this. This was a solid read. I mean, you start off the issue with a, a flashback that we've seen 800 times before with uh, Christopher Summers and his wife uh, flying their plane in Alaska years ago. They put uh, Scott and Alex in the only parachute that's on, on the board, which really is kind of an issue as to why that was. Or I think it's supposed to be that you know they lost... I mean, they don't say it here, but I think that the whole idea was that they only have one parachute because something else happened to the others because otherwise who would go up and you know in the air without enough parachutes for their family anyways we see scott and uh, alex being thrown out of the plane and then we have the and i was gonna say present scott but really the all new x-men version of scott the um you know the original x-men character from the 60s he wakes up and he's on board uh the star jammer's ship um he sees Corsair, and he realizes that's his dad, and that's a kind of a nice bonding moment. And a lot of the issue shows this bonding between these two men, and it's interesting because Corsair has met Cyclops already. He's done this. He's done this whole... Now, first of all, I don't even know how he's alive. He should be dead. So, I mean, it, and it doesn't really get explained here, and instead we get, like, a ridiculous, like, Corsair moment of where he's like, well, I thought you were dead, Star-Lord. And he's like, well, I thought you were dead. And it's kind of like, really? Um... He's been dead since the rise and fall of the Shadow Empire storyline, uh, where he's killed by Emperor Falcon. Uh, it really bo- bothers me uh, that Bendis doesn't seem to care, and the editors don't seem to care to explaining these things. I understand they don't want to be handcuffed by continuity when they want to use certain versions of characters, but at least give me something. Like I, th- I find Bendis is one of the worst uh, for this, in that he'll just kind of do what he wants with his own continuity and damn everyone else's. I'm actually surprised that all new X-Men even had a specific moment from an actual comic where the X-Men were plucked out of. I'm surprised he didn't just manufacture something and, and just make sure that that's what it was. Because that's kind of what I expect from Bendis. He's a good writer, he writes some good stories, but he just doesn't seem to care about continuity. And I'm raised on the 80s and 90s high, heyday of continuity, so I find it it's an anathema to what I've been raised on. So I, I know I'm supposed to be able to enjoy a good story and not get bogged down by the details, but a character died. At least try to pretend like you care about explaining how that happened or how this character's back. Um, also, I mean, whenever I think about going back and reading Gardens of the Galaxy from a few years ago, what, 2008, 
uh, it makes me mad that like they've absolutely changed the Star Lord character. I mean, the way he was in Annihilation and Annihilation Conquest is so cool, and what he is now is so much more bland. And the whole his dad thing, I mean, ugh, it just really pisses me off. It bothers me. I don't care for that development, um, which we see a lot of here. Um, I do like having you know the fact that Gladiator, regardless of being the ma uh, Magister of um, of the Shi'ar Empire, is still you know training with. The Shi'ar Imperial Guard, and I like his discussions with Oracle here about putting uh, Jean Grey on trial. Again, a lot of the issue is Scott and um, Scott and uh, Corsair having their heart to heart. But there's also some really good stuff here with uh, Scott Summers and um, and X23, and I kind of like how they're developing this. It's weird because it's a younger version of Cyclops and a female clone of Wolverine, and their regular male selves hate each other, but. There's this weird bond between the younger clone and previous version of, which I kind of like. And I mean, that original Brandon Peterson cover was atrocious with them making out, but I kind of like what they're going with it. It's kind of interesting. Um, there's more here again with uh, Oracle and Jean Grey kind of having the, their telepathic uh, conference. And then finally, Jean is put on trial, which there isn't much of before the issue's over. Um, and I'm interested to see where they go with this in the next issue, which is All-New X-Men 24, which is, I guess, uh, chapter... I want to say that's chapter... F well, that's chapter 5, sorry. For some reason, I thought this was a five-part story, but thankfully, uh, it's not. So I guess part 6 will be in Guardians of the Galaxy 13. Um, the only issue here is that the Guardians get really short sh short shrift. Um, to be honest, this is much more of an All-New X-Men storyline. The Guardians are just kind of along for the ride, uh, this is their own issue, but you'd be hard-pressed to realize that it is, because there's so much focus paid to the all-new X-Men. Uh, so I'm going to give this issue an 8. I actually, I mean, I dug it. I mean, I definitely have some issues with parts of it, but I thought it was a pretty strong script and great artwork. Uh, next up is Hawkeye, number 15. Um, this was great. I mean, the cover is fantastic. The Fun and Games Hawkeye, and it has uh, all the, all the uh, creators are... Uh, um, on this word search, which I really like. It's written by Matt Fraction, our work by David Aja. Uh, it's, once again, uh, Hawkeye and his brother against the tracksuit mafia. Um, the, the Fraction, once again, plays with uh, the sequence of events here, and kind of, you see elements here and there, and you kind of, you're kind of jumping all over the place as you're kind of filling in the blanks of this tableau and understanding what the full chronology is, as... Hawkeye and his brother fend off any attackers to this to uh, the building that he's been living in. Um, that being said, I mean there obviously is some logic leaps here because realistically any superhero could have helped fix this, like like a more powered superhero. Um, but Hawkeye has enough contacts that he could have fixed this much easier, more easily, if he had either someone's money or someone's power. But as it is, it has kind of a brutal ending uh, with the weird teardrop killer that we've been seeing recently uh, with um, Hawkeye stabbed with two arrows and also his brother shot. Um, I mean, again, the Mazzucchelli comparisons for David Aja are incredibly apt here. Um, the script is absolutely solid. I mean, as much as there might be some logic leaps here and there, it's as long as it keeps an internal logic, which it is, uh, it's remained an incredibly enjoyable and engaging book, and the artwork is breathtaking. I'm going to give this a 9 out of 10. Uh, so next up is none other than one of my, usually one of my favorite books, and that's Manhattan Projects number 18. Uh, this issue is called Assassination. It's once again by Jonathan Hickman and Nick Patara. 
Uh, you have Jordi Belair doing the colors. Um, this was really, really awesome and brutal and uh, a good issue. Um, the first, I mean, first of all, there's a lot of shocking things here. Uh, I love that you have, I believe it's MacArthur, uh, against the weird blue alien from the last two issues. Um, the first half of the issue is just them having this knockdown dragout fight, and it's so brutal but awesome. And at the very end, uh, I mean, basically the human wins and then gets to wear a giant alien blue ear around his neck. Uh, we then see uh, the rest of the cast of the Manhattan Projects in prison with Oppenheimer, you know, offering them, uh, one of them, you know, the, uh, the chance to work with him and volunteer and everyone's kind of spits in his face, except for Albrecht Einstein, which I'm wondering if eventually people are going to find out that he's not the real Albert Einstein or if that's ever going to come into play. And he decides to join up with Oppenheimer because, uh, he is not a good man. Uh, we then go to, um... Leslie Groves, and he is actually ends up his life is saved as Mac by MacArthur, who now has a different way of viewing the world after what he's just gone through against the giant blue alien. And he extends a um, kind of a hand to Leslie Groves to say, you know, do you want to work with me to protect us from those who are these aliens and these weird, you know, asses? Uh, we then go to Einstein's lab, and I'm not really sure what's supposed to be going on here, but we have the, this connection that's going on in um, Oppenheimer's mind, and I'm curious as to what it's supposed to be, um, but it looks like something happens to Oppenheimer's mind, and I think maybe it's that it either purged the other, the other um, uh, personalities, or maybe it restored the Robert over the Joseph, who knows, at the last, at the, at the end of the issue, we don't know who does it, but someone shoots Oppenheimer right through the skull, and um, I honestly didn't see that coming, in the last page of Einstein like, having a drink, and being like, now I see what all Z fuss is about, and being really shocked and surprised, and you have the artificial AI of uh, FDR watching as well with horror, um, I don't know where this book's gonna go next, I mean, I was shocked. I did not see that coming at all. Um, the whole series up until now has been very much about, um, you know, Oppenheimer. So what happens when Oppenheimer isn't isn't in the book anymore? Like, is he dead? Like, are we gonna the whole, you know, um, the infinite Oppenheimer thing? Is that just not going to be in play anymore? I mean, I guess it, how could it? But who knows? Um, this was a thrilling, thrilling issue. Uh, as I said, the first half had a great fight sequence. The second half was surprising characterization and that great uh, climactic ending panel. I don't even know where this book is going to go next, but uh, I definitely enjoyed it quite a lot. Um, so I'm going to give it a, a nine and a half. I thought this was fantastic. Uh, and definitely, I mean, if you've been enjoying this book, it just makes it's all the sweeter, to be honest. It's, it's just such a solid, solid read. Uh, next up is Origin 2, number 3. Oh man, this book is just not good. With each passing issue, I kind of wonder why this book is even happening at all. Um, it is so... For those who love the Origin 1, like this is this is atrocious. Uh, it's written by Kieran Gillen, artwork by Adam Kubert. Um, I mean, the whole issue, you got Sinister involved. You got this weird... I don't even know who this girl is, but with a creepy face. I forget who she was... What her name is, even. Uh, you have a Sabretooth who it reminds me more of maybe Ultimate Sabretooth, and it doesn't feel like anything that could ever become the Sabretooth we know in the comics. Uh, Wolverine is part of this traveling circus now as this man-beast. Um, Essex just wants to purchase him, so use him for his own experiments. Um, at the very end of the issue, 
Wolverine escapes with uh, and is rescued by this girl. I, I again, I don't even remember her name, and uh, and uh, Sabretooth himself. Um, it feels so not even part of the overall origin story. Um, it doesn't even feel like Wolverine at all. It doesn't feel like Logan or James or whatever you want to call him. And I just, I don't like this. I think the, the writing is really just painful to read. Uh, the artwork's alright, but it's not the best from Kubert I've ever seen. I'm going to give it a 4 out of 10, but man, like, I, I don't even know why it exists. I do not know why the series has to exist. We got the earliest story of Wolverine. That was enough. We can fill in the blanks. We have enough other garbage that we know that exists in his history. But now to have this, and this is the first experience with Sabretooth? I'm sorry. This is just such a disappointment. I would rather have Sabretooth been his brother. Uh, that being said, Dog is his own ridiculous character, Wolverine and the X-Men. So, uh, it just, I was so disappointed. This could have been so much better, and it should have been. Um, ugh, next up is Secret Avengers, number 16. Uh, I enjoyed this issue. That being said, it's a weird issue because it's the last part of a storyline. A lot of weird things happen, and then it ends the book. And it just feels like this book was on such a high, you know, high roll to begin with, and then it just kind of fell apart. Uh, it's written by Nick Spencer and Alice Coate, who is doing the new Secret Avengers launch as part of uh, Only Marvel Now. Artwork is by Luke Ross. I really like the Luke Ross artwork. At times, it looks like something by uh, Mike Diodato. Um, so we pick up from the last issue where. Um, it turns out that, you know, that Yelena Belova is the one who was shot and, uh, and really injured, uh, during the, the, the escape from Mame Island that the Secret Avengers were going through. They thought it was Bobby, but they actually had, uh, Black uh, Widow and she was shot, so it wasn't the real Bobby. Bobby's got her mind messed with, so she had to, she kind of confronts, uh, Andrew Forson here, the leader of AIM, um, and she just savagely beats him before... Uh, she almost kills him, and it's for a moment it almost looks like she does, uh, but no, he survives, so does she. Um, Taskmaster seems to be alive, I don't really know how exactly that's happening. We kind of get an explanation, but not a good one from Mentallo. And then Mentallo is doing some weird circles in the sand, and then apparently there's some weird, like, I don't know, nanobots that were coming from him and from his ears, and again, it doesn't make any sense, but... The pages are, are gorgeous, because, and it's a good sentiment with uh, Mentello saying goodbye to Taskmaster. Uh, we have basically MODOK joining S.H.I.E.L.D. to operate as part of, um, what's it called, as uh, he's joining S.H.I.E.L.D. As, as part of the Secret Avengers. At the end of the issue, we basically have uh, Hawkeye and War Machine, or Iron Patriot as he is now, uh, James Rhodes, leaving the Secret Avengers, leaving, I guess, just Nick Fury and uh, Black Widow. Uh, she says the word to, I guess, m r wipe memory of the entire ordeal from their minds. Um, and that would be uh, Iron Patriot and Hawkeye here. And then at the very end of the issue, we have uh, Mockingbird meeting up with the Winter Soldier and Daisy Johnson, who's now X-Shield. So I know I missed some issues in the middle of this run, but I feel like I missed a lot. And then I don't get this either, that... Apparently, in the new Secret Avengers launch, we're going to have Hawkeye on the team again, as well as Spider-Woman, so who knows what's going on. I, I wanted to like this. I like the art. Um, I like what's, what they're trying to do with it, but it just felt like an odd ending, uh, kind of a rough, kind of rushed ending, so that they could launch as part of all new Marvel now, and I don't really get the point of that. Uh, this book started so strong, and it kind of felt like it fizzled, and a lot of what we're seeing here is really just setting up the next stage, and I'm hoping that Mockingbird will be somewhere, but I don't even know if it's going to be in Secret Avengers or not. Um, I'm going to give it about a six and a half. There's a lot of good elements here, but as I said, 
And as you're hearing me say, there's also a lot of stuff that doesn't quite work. Um, next up is Superior Spider-Man 28. Um, oh, this book is great. Um, this is Goblin Nation Part 2. Uh, so I guess how many chapters are there left? There's 29, 30, 31. So there's three chapters left of Goblin Nation. Um, this are, The artwork is by Giuseppe Camincoli. Dan Slott continues to write it. Uh, I mean, they're really kind of going full hold, no holds barred here. We have Spider Island being uh, bombed. Um, Spider-Man is just barely able to escape himself. I do like that his henchman dies. I don't like that his henchman dies. But I like that it says, <laughs> not number 23, he was my favorite. Such a a real interesting Doc Ock line. The way that they've written Doc Ock is kind of being above certain things and being a bit of a dick. That is a perfect line for him. Uh, the Mindscape stuff I find less interesting because I just don't really like where it's going, generally. Um, and then we have more developments with uh, the uh, Goblin Slayers. So that'll be coming up in the next two issues. So that'll be exciting. Having Mary Jane kind of she has got to be the most schizophrenic character in terms of her how she's characterized, but I like how she's characterized here as she fends off uh, some of the goblin minions who go after her uh, with her spider sh uh, web shooters that she keeps in a safe, and then uh, she rounds up J. Jonah J. Uh, sorry, J. Jameson and uh, Aunt May to try and get them out of out of dodge so that uh, they're safe from the goblins. Uh, the last issue. Sorry, the last page is really kind of scary as Menace in the guise of Lily Hollister picks up Anna Maria. So it's definitely, I'm hoping they don't kill off Anna Maria. Not only because it's very much, it would very much be a, a women in refrigerators moment, but also just because I like the character. That being said, she may not have any place in a non-auto uh, non Parker. Um, I really enjoyed the issue though. There's a lot going on. Uh, almost too much at times, but I mean, it's... For so many comics that have decompression problems and there's not enough happening, that's never a problem with Superior Spider-Man. Uh, if you're a book written by Slot, generally, there's more than enough ideas to go around. In fact, he's probably packing too much in. And this day, in these days, sorry, in this day and age, when you're paying four dollars for a comic, at least as you are for Superior Spider-Man, I'd rather get too much than too little. Uh, so I give it an eight out of ten. Next up is Talon number sixteen. Ugh. Uh, I'm surprised this book is still going. I don't really like the new status quo. Mainly because I just don't understand what's happening or why this book is even still around. The character has no real point in living as a character. Like, he had a very specific origin and motivation, but now it's that's all gone. Tim Seeley is writing it with artwork by Jorge Lewis. Um, I kind of like the art, but I just don't care for the story. Um, and having, like... Calvin Rowe's dealing with being this kind of dead thing that he's not the way he was when he was human. Uh, they're trying to kind of build up a supporting cast of, of, of sorts, but I just didn't find it engaging or interesting or all that thrilling. So I'm going to give it a 5.5 out of 10. Uh, next up is Thunderbolts 22. This it was actually more fun than I expected it to be. Um, although I really don't like the covers. Uh, who's doing the cover right now? Julian Totino Tedesco, not a big fan, but I do like the artwork in the interiors by Carlo Barberi. Uh, Charles Sule, or Sule, he's doing a good job with the story, So, and I do like that they're kind of confronting something that Peter David left, which didn't need to be so quickly you know, undone, but it, at least it's done properly in terms of, it, we got a proper story showing um, a strong guy being you know, kicked out of being king of the hell. I'm okay with it happening as long as we get to see it and it's not just, oh, look, oh, what do you mean King, uh, you know, Guido was ever, 
you know, King of Hell, no, that didn't really happen. We're not going to talk about that. No, it's fully addressed here. So the Thunderbolts uh, basically have to go up against all these minions of Hell to get to um, to get to none other than Strong Guys to battle him uh, for possession of Hell. So we end up having uh, Red Hulk and Strong Guy going up against each other, and they make a deal uh, to basically have Strong Guy throw the fight. So when Strong Guy loses, Mephisto takes a... Uh, you know, takes his place, but uh, they're able to kind of use the legal terms of the agreement that they made to help Mephisto uh, to bring some angels uh, into hell, as which is going to kind of screw up the... Um, uh, they bring a soul vacuum, and then they bring the entire heavenly host into hell, and that really pisses off uh, Mephisto, and then uh, they take off, and they go back to, uh, you know, out of hell, and uh, Ghost Rider officially joins the team. Interesting. Uh, it's actually, as I said, more fun than I expected it to be, so I'm going to give it a 7 out of 10. Uh, not this, you know, maybe a 6.5. It wasn't the strongest issue, but it's getting to a better place. And I tell you, having Barbarian artwork as opposed to Dylan, who did the first little while, is all the difference in the world. Uh, next up is Uncanny Avengers 17. Uh, continue to really enjoy this, uh, although we'll be sad to see McNevin go as we get uh, Akuna back next issue. I think it's next issue anyway. I recommend his writing it with Steve McNiven on art as we continue the uh, the Ragnarok storyline. Uh, I like that we're getting us uh, the the first page kind of gives us a sense that something has already happened and we're getting Havoc's kind of discussion of what happens to the world after everything that happens in this storyline. Um, this issue is mainly focused on the remaining uh, Child of Apocalypse uh, or Apocalypse Twin who's now not a twin because, well, she's still twin, but now there's only one of them surviving, going up against uh, Thor. Uh, he's trying to reclaim, uh, what is it, Yarborn or whatever the axe is called, so he can go uh, fight against the Celestial. Um, meanwhile, you have Wasp and uh, Captain America going up against uh, the Grim Reaper to try and be able to uh, allow the Temporal Forces to uh, stop everything from happening, and it's all up to the Wasp to get it happen. Uh, Captain America seem seemingly dies during the storyline, so I mean, obviously it's going to be very timey-wimey. Um, Earth seems to be destroyed as well as the a Watcher watches, and, um, you know, uh, everything's been taken away from Kang, there's almost nothing left. Uh, Thor is able to escape, um narrowly and, and go back to the Asgard space where he talks to his father and he you know he blames himself for everything that's happened because of his folly as a youth and uh, you know Odin just kind of tells him that the true fault lies with men Ragnarok was their choice uh, which is a very somber last page extremely well illustrated um, I just really liked it a lot it's, it's fantastic stuff and uh, we can only imagine what Planet X is going like, to look like in the next storyline um, but um, the whole mega arc that Remender's putting together is so well thought out, and uh, it's been kind of a pulse-pounding adventure, big moments. It, it, ha it has the weirdness that he had in Uncanny X-Force, but I think because now he's access to you know, brighter, bigger characters, the storyline feels much bigger and brighter, even though it's bleak, but I mean, it just feels like a, a much more epic storyline uh, as opposed to the way the Uncanny X-Force storylines broke out. Although, again... It was epic in its own way, but it felt a, little, a lot more intimate most of the time. This feels galaxy-shattering. Uh, this was a fantastic issue. It remains a fantastic arc, and the book, and again, is quite good. I'm going to give it an 8.5 out of 10. Uh, three books left. We have Wolverine, uh, number two. 
Um, kind of a weird book. Uh, better than the first issue, mainly because I just really like the flashback portions of uh, the Superior Spider-Man and uh, Wolverine kind of, not teaming up per se, but having an interaction, and I thought it was actually pretty solid. Um, seeing Stegman illustrate Spider-Man is just really a treat, and I'm going to miss him on that book. Um, you have Otto and Wolverine coming from extremely different places, uh, but having a discussion of, you know, kind of moving beyond one's limits, um, and, and their potential faults, uh, what gets in the way of doing what you need to do, changing. Wolverine has obviously noticed that Spider-Man's changed a lot as a person. He's wondering, you know, what kind of brought that about, but he also thinks that it's kind of working for him. Uh, we're seeing a little bit of the present stuff, but I think maybe the issue, well, the reason why I thought this issue was so strong is because there's much more of a focus on the events leading up to Wolverine becoming what he is now, which I still don't really, really like all that much. But the, the path to get there I found interesting, even though I don't like the destination. But there's not as much in the so-called present. It's much more the, the, you know, the moments leading up to it with Superior Spider-Man and him kind of learning and deciding to go a certain direction. So that I really enjoyed. So I'm going to give this an 8 out of 10. The arc isn't really getting that, but the current, you know, the, the stuff leading up to why he's in the current predicament I find a lot more engaging. Uh, then we have Wolverine and the X-Men 42, which is the last issue. Um, and I just feel like we've done this before. Uh, it didn't feel all that original. I just feel like it hasn't been that long since we've had a, a story of kind of the future of the, uh, of the Xavier, in sorry, not Xavier, the, um, uh, Jean Grey Institute. And now we get yet another story of an old Logan deciding to shut down the school, going through it with Edie, what, juxtaposed with a graduation, which feels really early for a lot of these characters. And I don't know. Uh, I, it just bugged me. And you got these ideas of what happens in the future, which I, I find these days is not, doesn't have the same kind of thrill it used to. Especially, it's the last issue of the book, so it's kind of it has that Jeff Johns feel on Green Lantern, where we got a large segment of it, kind of looking at what happens in the future. But who knows if it's actually going to happen? Because new writers are going to come on and fuck it all up. So, what was the point of even getting that story done? Um, and the and the, the whole the whole thing is very protracted, with Logan deciding to shut down the school, him having a conversation with Quentin Quire. We, again, juxtaposed with the younger version of Quentin Quire graduating when he didn't expect to. Um, and then, I guess, the, the negative zone being breached in the future, and then Wolverine deciding to reopen the school when he's a much older man. I just didn't care for it. And the whole, and the dupe stuff, and I don't know. And then the, the book, the way the book kind of ends with uh, Bachalo and Art again is kind of nice, but and then the book's over. I, I just didn't, I don't know. It, it feels like there wasn't a good thorough line through the entire series. We had certain sub-arcs that happened, but when it all kind of ended, it didn't feel like there was a, you know, a, a good payoff to me. I just felt like it just kind of, we're ending the book because Jason Aaron's leaving, but we're not really ending the book because then we're going to launch a new version of the, um, the Wolverine and the X-Men book as part of all new Marvel now, so it feels very disingenuous, but at least it's a new creative team. And really, I guess just when they have new creative teams coming on books now that have had a solid creative team for a while, now they just renumber it and you know restart it. Which is, I get it, but it's it's. I still like legacy numbering, and I guess I mean I'm not the only one who likes that, obviously. But uh, I think I'm the only one who actually, sorry, I don't think anyone likes it who actually works for Marvel or DC and actually has impact on these things, actually cares for legacy numbering at all anymore. 
Uh, this issue was written by Jason Aaron with a lot of uh, artists. We had Nick Bradshaw, Pepe Larraz, Ramon Perez, uh, Sean Crystal, Steve Sanders, Nuno Alves, uh, Tim Townsend, and Chris Buccalo. That is a ton of people. Um, and it kind of shows, to be honest with you, because there's not a lot of consistency in the art. I'm going to give it a 6. I mean, it had elements I liked a lot, and then I'll say a lot of stuff I didn't necessarily like. Also, I wish that there was a page breakdown for which which pages were done by which which uh, artist, but, you know, it's, they decided that they didn't want to provide that. Uh, and the last book I'm going to take a look at is World's Finest, number 20. This is part 2 of the First Contact storyline. It's written by Paul Levitz with artwork by Silva. Um, let's see. Actually, sorry, it's co-conspirators listed as Greg Pak, obviously, because he wrote his chapter. Uh, Scott McDaniel actually did the breakdowns with R.B. Silva on pencils. Uh, and then inks by Joe Weems. Um, I enjoyed this more than chapter one, probably just because the artwork was a lot better. Uh, and having Batman and Superman kind of being at odds and also seeing how Huntress and Power Girl uh, handle it as well. Um, I don't even know who this villain is who Huntress fights against, though. But it's interesting, too, because you have Huntress and Superman. And you have Power Girl and Batman for a while. So I kind of like the juxtaposition and those wouldn't necessarily be the characters you expect to get together um so I did enjoy it I'm interested to see where they're going to go with this if it's ever going to lead to uh Power Girl and Huntress being able to go back to their own world or not um I I dug this I'm going to give it a maybe a 7 out of 10 which is a whole point higher than the first chapter uh I thought it was a lot more solid and again a lot of that because of the artwork um Oh, I miss not having the conflicting narration because I like the narration in Batman Superman that we got, you know, all the different characters giving their bird's eye view and we got we didn't really get that here because I guess Levitz didn't want to use that mechanism and I think that it would have helped because I think it was what works in these Batman Superman books when they have the conflicting narration of the two characters that I like when they give different comments or they'll say one thing and they immediately are referencing what the other person just said. So you have their dialogue and then you also have their uh, internal dialogue as well. So you have what they're actually saying, what they're thinking, and then how, what they're thinking about each other. And I always, I always like that. Um, so anyway, that's uh, 7 out of 10. And that's every book for this week that I'm going to be taking a look at. Uh, the books I didn't get a chance to look at that came out this week include 100 Bullets, Brother Lono, number 8, Adventures of Superman, number 10, All-Star Western, 28, Avengers Assemble, number 24, Batman the Dark Knight, number 28, Where the Batman, number 5, Cataclysm Ultimate's Last Stand, number 5, Catwoman, 28, another Gothopia chapter, which I just didn't really care to read, uh, DC Universe versus Masters of the Universe, 5, Dead Boy Detectives, number 3, Deadpool, 24, Forever Evil Argus, number 5, George Romero's Empire of Dead, Act 1, number 2. That's a confusing title. Indestructible Hulk, number 19. Justice League Dark, number 28. Fireflies, number 8. Marvel Universe Ultimate Spider-Man, 23. Mighty Avengers, number 7. Miracle Man, number 3. Revolutionary War Super Soldiers, number 1. Scooby-Doo, Where Are You, number 42. Superman, 28. Superman, Lois Lane, number 1. Teen Titans, 28. And Wake, number 6. That is a lot of books. Uh, looking forward to this coming week, which... Uh, I guess will be, what, March 5th. Um, let's take a look at the releases that will be uh, coming out soon. Let me just uh, open that up here, and uh, here we go. Well, as luck would have it, uh, previewsworld.com isn't working right now, so I can't actually see the list of comics coming out this coming week on the 4th. Sorry, not 4th, 5th. But uh, I'm sure there's some good stuff. 
<laughs> uh, anyways, thank you for joining me for episode 149 of Comic Shenanigans. Um, I enjoy doing these reviews episode, and we continue to keep doing them, and I hope we'll do them for a long time to come. So thank you very much for listening. Um, you can email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com, like us on Facebook, post in our HC Realms thread, and also please rate and review us on iTunes. It's the only way to help grow the show and grow the audience, and tell friends about us. If, if you like listening to the show, refer us to a friend. We really appreciate that. Uh, word of mouth is another good way to uh, grow the show and have more people uh, be attracted to listen to it as well. So thanks again for listening to this episode. Uh, the next episode, 150, I'm not really sure what we're going to be looking at. Um, it might be an episode looking at solicitations for, I believe, May 2014. That's one option. Uh, one other option might be to look at, uh, because episode 150 may be looking at my favorite anniversary issues of particular comics. Um, but if you have an idea uh, for something that you'd like to see or hear on the next episode, uh, email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com. Uh, I'd really love to hear your thoughts. Um, you know, I, I often do do requests. I take requests from uh, audience uh, members, and I try to make shows that will target what people are interested in hearing about. So if you have an idea of what you'd like to hear for episode 150 that I could do, then uh, please let me know. Unfortunately, it will likely be a solo episode just because the schedule's uh, not being aligned for a while. Um, so if you have something you want me to do on the episode, on the show, please let me know, and I'll make sure I can uh, to help deliver. So thank you for joining me, and uh, we will catch you next time for the, the well, I'm not going to say giant size because it probably won't be giant size, but I'd like to say, I'd like to think that it'll be the giant-sized episode 150. Thank you for joining me for episode 149, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.